I've entitled this morning's fourth and final message in our Advent series based on this last part of Matthew chapter 2. I've entitled it Advent Opposition. Advent Opposition. If you saw in the worship bulletin, you may have seen it printed a little differently. Yeah, it's there as Christmas Opposition. It's not because they misprinted it. It's because I changed my mind at the 11th hour because I don't know what else to say. I like the sound of Advent Opposition better than Christmas Opposition. There's a better assonance to Advent Opposition, if that means anything to anyone in the room this morning. I like the sound of Advent Opposition, but I should say I'm not crazy about the reality of it. I don't really like it when I see Advent Opposition in the world, and I don't like it when I see Advent Opposition in my own heart, in my own life. I wonder if you feel the same. What is Advent opposition, you may be wondering? Advent, you may know, comes from the Latin word adventus, which means arrival, or coming. It's a way of talking about, of course, the great story that we rehearse each Christmas, the arrival or the advent, the incarnation of the Son of God in the world, Jesus, the Christ child, who is King and Lord over all the advent of the Son of God. And so Advent opposition, well, that's a way of talking about resistance in the world, resistance in our lives to the arrival of Christ. Advent opposition is a way of referring to, you probably know what I'm talking about, like the pushback that we see from the world and even in our own hearts. To Christ the King, who makes his way into the world and makes his way into our lives. There's an Advent opposition, both at a global scale and at a very personal scale, in our own hearts. Of course, the arrival of the Son of God in the world is not supposed to be met with opposition. I mean, it's to be met with joy, as in like, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth, come on, you better join me, otherwise I'm going to embarrass myself. Receive her king, let every heart prepare him room. Am I singing too fast? And heaven and nature sing. This is my favorite part. Heaven and, nature, and he heaven and nature sing. You know that part, right? Like that's supposed to be the response to Advent. The sad and sobering reality is we know that's not true for lots of people. Not everyone's excited about Jesus coming into the world. Not everyone wants to sing for joy. Not everyone wants to prepare Christ's room, not in their heart, not in their house, not in their home, not in their city, not in their country. The sun's advent, it's not good news for everybody. Heaven and earth, they may be singing, singing for joy even. But certainly there are others all around the world that are conspiring against Christ to resist and to oppose him rather than to receive him. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about Advent opposition. And that's the theme for this morning's message, Advent opposition. But you may be wondering to yourself when you hear me set up the theme for this morning's message, like why on earth is Pastor Todd preaching on this slightly depressing topic on the eve of 
Christmas? Does he not know which Sunday this is? Shouldn't we be getting more excited and upbeat and happy and even joyful for the arrival of Christmas? Should I, you may be thinking to yourself, have just stayed home to watch Charles Stanley or the Cooking Channel this morning? Well, we've got to address Advent opposition for a very simple reason. And it's to make sense of the passage that Meg just read for us in the end of Matthew chapter 2. I mean, what else were we going to say about this passage? Which is part of the Christmas story. Then that not everybody is rejoicing at the arrival of Jesus on planet Earth. That there is real Advent opposition in the world. I mean, take a look with me, will you, at this passage. It's, it's obviously a continuation of chapter 2, and so it picks up the narrative thread that was begun in chapter 2. Pastor Gerald got us into that last week and continues on with the same story, the same narrative thread. You'll notice in verses 13 through 23 who the main character is who shows up in all three of the paragraphs in chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Who is the main character? It's not, I'm sorry to say, Jesus or Joseph or Mary or even the angel. The main character is that character, Herod. That's the main character. And I got to confess, what is said of Herod in this passage, especially, look with me, will you, at verses 16 through 18, is very troubling. Even verses 13 through 15, look there, Joseph and Mary, the baby Jesus, stealing away by stealth in the dark of night to avoid being killed. Then the very next passage, the slaughtering of the innocent young children in Bethlehem. These are not exactly the scenes anyone puts on a Christmas card and sends with holiday greetings to anybody. This kind of sober and depressing stuff. And yet it's part of our Christmas story. And why is that? Why is it that Matthew would include this stuff in his gospel? I mean, presumably he's got something he wants us to see and understand about Advent by focusing our attention, even if for a few moments, on this character, Herod, and his opposition to the Advent of Christ. You'll notice, look there, verses 13 and following, you'll notice Herod is mentioned several times through this whole passage. He is known in, 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 in biblical times and by historians as Herod the Great. Though admittedly, there's not that much great about the guy. He's also the Roman-appointed king of Judea at the time, king of the Jews at the time of the birth of Christ, but there's not much that's very kingly about this guy. He was rather a tyrant. Not very great, not very kingly. You should think Kim Jong-un of North Korea. That's a good analogy. And I'm not being hyperbole there. I mean, that's not hyperbolic there. I mean, the Jewish historian Josephus describes Herod, like not, not a Christian writing. This is the Jewish historian Josephus writing at the time of Christ. He describes this guy not only as like tyrannical, but as a bit of a loose cannon like so many tyrants are. And so Josephus says this about Herod. He was a man who was cruel to all alike and one who easily gave into anger and was contemptuous of justice. 
And like so many tyrants, so many dictators through history, he was also a bit paranoid, this Herod was. He was paranoid of losing his grip on power. It's often the case with those that cling most tightly to power. They are, ironically, the most paranoid of losing their power. Herod was no different. And so Herod took matters into his own hands to make sure no one would threaten his hold on the throne. His own sovereignty would not be threatened. And so he did some diabolical things like, literally, killing his brother-in-law, killing his mother-in-law, killing his favorite wife, Marianne, killing his three oldest sons, killing a bunch of other people who he thought he even had a little suspicion might want to challenge his authority, challenge his sovereignty. He had them executed. He was not a nice guy. And so, of course, it makes all the sense in the world when he catches wind from these magi from the east that there is a king that has been born, like, in his own territory. Like that gets his blood a boil. Sends him on a bloodthirsty rant with tragic consequences for so many in Bethlehem and all around that area. Infanticide is his only solution. Look at verse 16. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. That is diabolical. That is crazy and creepy. And yet notice that Herod doesn't sink to such depths because he despises little children. That's not the reason. That's not why he hatches his murderous plot, just because he, like, has a thing against little kids. No, it's much more specific why he does that. He, Herod, doesn't want there to be any threat to his sovereignty, to his kingship, to his authority over his own life and the lives of others, to his throne. So Herod, you may say, doesn't want to sing joy to the world because it would mean receiving Christ as his king. And so you see what Herod rages against isn't children, it's a rival sovereignty. Let me say that again. The Advent opposition Matthew describes for us in this passage is there not to make the point about Herod having opposition to children, opposition to the the Christ child for that matter as a child, rather It's to show his opposition to a rival sovereignty, someone who would challenge his own lordship and his own authority. You think about it that way. You pause for a moment and you you start to wonder if there's a sense in which perhaps we're not all that different from Herod. I don't mean, of course, murderous plots. I mean the strong resistance Herod shows to anything or anyone who would challenge his own sovereignty. Perhaps us in the room this morning are not all that different from Herod. Or let me put it this way. 
Isn't Herod the tyrant actually Herod the everyman? Don't we all have a little bit of Herod in our hearts? Isn't there something within all of us that would rather, as the devil puts it in Milton's Paradise Lost, reign in hell than serve in heaven? Be our own king or our own queen. Be our own sovereign. Be our own Lord. Be our own little Herod over our little dominion. The Bible, which admittedly is a fairly blunt book, it describes us just this way. It doesn't use the language of little Herods in each of our souls, but I think it's a clear implication of this passage. And when you put it with the rest of the teaching of Scripture, the Bible seems to say, y'all, there is an advent opposition, not only in the world, but in our own hearts. That deep down, we all feel threatened at the prospect of another king in our lives, meddling with our own sense of sovereignty over ourselves. We don't want that. We want to reign supreme in our own lives. I mean, isn't that why, why it is it's hard to sing joy to the world? I, mean, I don't mean mutter the words out of the words joy to the world. I mean like live the reality of joy to the world. Because it means preparing him room in our hearts, even our lives. Giving up control and sovereignty over how it is we live. Letting Jesus come in and and determine and, and reign supreme over what we do with our lives and what we believe and what we think and how we spend our money and how we spend our time and how we react to strangers and how we respond to enemies as Lord of our lives, not ourselves as Lord of our lives. You know, it's interesting, in each of the four Gospels, you see this, this, call it a theme or a motif of Advent opposition, and each of the four Gospels delivers, develops it a little bit differently. We have, of course, the story of Herod and his maniacal murderous threats and ways here in Matthew chapter 2. It's Matthew's way of talking about Advent opposition. The Gospel of John has a different way of talking about Advent opposition. It doesn't refer to the story of Herod, though no doubt John knew that story. Rather, speaks more abstractly, you might say, more sweepingly, more theologically even. And here's how John, the Gospel writer, puts it in his opening chapter, verses 9, 10, and 11. Listen to these words. This is Advent opposition in the voice of John, the Gospel writer. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's Advent opposition. That's resistance to the presence of Christ. That's pushback on the person of Christ. It's Advent opposition. It's in the world. It's in our hearts. You may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't do that. I never do this kind of Advent pushback on the presence and person of Christ in my life. If you're saying that to yourself, it may be a sign of just how much you do it. Actually, 
But why the opposition? Why is there this Advent pushback in all of our souls? John, the gospel writer, goes on a little bit later in his gospel in chapter 3 in a famous passage to describe Advent opposition, and this is what he writes. And this is the judgment, John writes. The light has come into the world, Advent, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The Bible is an admittedly blunt book, isn't it? And what it says is that we oppose the presence of Christ in our lives because it will expose our lives. And so we don't like God's light shining in our lives. There's something deep within us that resists that. I think we all understand that and know that in our more honest moments. And there's sometimes something that resists the presence of Christ in our lives very strongly. Because the shining of God's light in our lives is God's way of asserting a sovereignty over us, bringing us out of the shadow of our own little lordship, bringing us into the sphere of His sovereign lordship. How does that happen? That happens by God shining light. It is His way of exercising sovereignty and lordship over us, and we don't particularly care for that. We don't like that. And if you want proof of just how much we don't like that, if you want proof of Advent opposition, you don't have to look to the story of Herod here in Matthew chapter 2, but rather look to the story of the crucifixion of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 and 27. Because there we see the culmination of Advent opposition. I mean, what is the Son of God doing being crucified on a cross? The historical Herod, he tried to kill him. But the reality is it is the Herod in each of our own hearts that ultimately put Christ on the cross. And so, you see, it seems to me that one of the surprising things, one of the uncomfortable things, frankly, one of the uncomfortable implications of this passage of Scripture this morning on this fourth Sunday of Advent, this, this passage of the Christmas, part of the Christmas story here from the end of Matthew chapter 2, one of the uncomfortable implications is this, that Advent opposition is in all of our hearts. Or let me put it this way, it's very natural to resist the presence of Christ in our lives. And it's very unnatural, you might say supernatural, to receive Christ into our lives. And that's a sobering truth. But let me also say this about it. It explains an awful lot, both for the Christians in the room this morning, but also for those who are not followers of Christ 
this reality of Advent opposition in our hearts explains an awful lot. For the Christian, what does it explain? I think it explains why it is so hard to live the Christian life and to grow in the Christian life. Because to live the Christian life and to grow in the Christian life is to surrender sovereignty over yourself and to submit to the sovereignty of Jesus in your life. And so growth in the Christian life ultimately becomes a battle of wills, a sovereignty of the self meeting the sovereignty of King Jesus, and that can create some conflict and some struggle in our souls. It's why it is that living the Christian life we often find to be a battle, to be hard. But for the non-Christians or those that are in the room that are not followers of Jesus, it also explains quite a lot, I think, as well, this Advent opposition. It explains, I think, check it out, why it is that it's often very hard for people to come to Christ. Not because there are all these intellectual objections, but because there's a, there's a something deeper, there's something going on deeper inside that is a resistance, that is an opposition. Not an intellectual objection. There may be those, and you work through those, but, but deeper down, an opposition, not in the head, but in the will. An opposition to bending the knee to another sovereign. An opposition to relinquishing control, ultimately, of your life to someone else. That's why it's hard for people to come to Christ, I think. That's why it was hard for C.S. Lewis to come to Christ. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's writings. You probably are also familiar with his conversion story. He tells it in his wonderful little spiritual autobiography entitled Surprised by Joy, and it is, I would commend it to you, one of the most honest and moving descriptions of a life and someone coming to Christ that you will ever read about. It is so blunt and candid the way he talks about coming to Christ, because what he gives voice to is the Herod in his own heart. (laughs) And he says very candidly, he doesn't want to give up sovereignty over his own life, as Jesus keeps encroaching on him to to draw him and woo him to himself. He can feel Jesus pulling and tugging at his heart, but he pushes back at every turn. He doesn't want to relinquish control of his own soul, of his own life. This is how he describes it as a battle the whole way over the edge into conversion. Listen to how Lewis describes it. It's absolutely fantastic. Listen to this. You must picture me, he says alone in that room in Maudlin College where he was a professor, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. 
Perhaps, he says, that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. It's a great description. Amazingly honest. The most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. You know who that is talking inside of him? That is the little Herod talking inside of him. That's Advent opposition. That was Lewis's dilemma, Lewis's challenge. That's our dilemma. That's our challenge as well. In fact, I'm sure there is at least one or two or maybe more people sitting here this morning that are on the cusp of yielding their lives to Christ, your life to Christ, but you're struggling. You're wrestling. You're resisting. Not even sure why. Something that attracts you to Christ. You don't have big intellectual objections. There's something that attracts you to Christ. He seems beautiful. He seems compelling. His life is story. He is teaching. And yet, deep down, you feel this being repelled by Christ as well. There's some Advent opposition in your soul. There's a little Herod at work, alive in your soul. I love what Lewis goes on to say as he describes his own conversion. How God, he doesn't use this language, but how God triumphed over the Herod in his own soul. How God's sovereign grace entered into his soul and triumphed over his advent opposition. Not by dominating, but by wooing. Not by subduing with power, but by drawing him with beauty and with mercy. I did not then see what is now, Lewis says, the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. He's talking about being drug into the kingdom of God by, by God. That God would even accept a convert like that is so shining, Lewis says, and the most obvious thing. He goes on to say, the prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore the love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape, he says. The words, compelle entrare, Latin, compel them to come in, have been so abused, Lewis says, by wicked men that we should shudder at them, compel them to come in. But properly understood, Lewis says, properly understood, compel to come in, properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. And then he says this delicious sentence, listen to this, the hardness of God in compelling, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his, God's compulsion, his compelling, his compulsion of us is our liberation. His sovereign power over our advent opposition is our freedom, is our salvation. 
And so like I said at the start of this message, this is a sobering, sobering passage. There are some grim and gruesome details we didn't plunge into this morning, but you see them there in the passage in front of us. Sobering part of the Christmas story, not Christmas card kind of stuff in this part of the Christmas story. And yet there is, I think, a message of hope, what we can take away from this passage. Because as we read in the story, we see the Christ child is miraculously and beautifully protected, angels showing up just in the nick of time, fleeing to Egypt where God is going to call forth His Son in a second exodus. This is all beautiful imagery and allusion to the Old Testament. The Christ child is protected just as God protected the Israelites in Egypt. And as Matthew underscores, look there in your passage, a number of times as the the tale of each of these little paragraphs, scriptures are fulfilled in this sovereign drama unfolding in human history with the Christ child. The scriptures are fulfilled, and ultimately, God's purposes are accomplished. This is the point about the language of fulfillment that Matthew reiterates, the Christ child is protected, the Scriptures are therefore fulfilled, and God's purposes are mightily accomplished. There's a message of hope in all of that. As we see in the world around us, Herod the dragon is still alive and well. His power in opposition to the Christ alive and well. We see it in the culture, in the world, all around us. But the message of hope is this. There's a greater power at work in the world than Herod's power. And it is a sovereign God who is working all things to the fulfillment of His sovereign purposes. There's a greater power at work in the world than Herod's power. But there's also a greater power at work in our hearts in the power of Herod. As C.S. Lewis so beautifully reminds us, that despite our own Advent opposition and resistance to the Christ child, there is a baby who was born a king who is not only stronger than all of our opposition, but check it out, he is more merciful as well. He is kinder to us than we would be to ourselves. He is more gracious to us than any of us could be toward one another. And He is more loving. And as Lewis reminds us, His compulsion, His compelling our wills in our lives is our liberation. His sovereignty in our lives is, in fact, our freedom, not our bondage. It is our freedom. And not only our freedom, y'all, it is our joy as well. Advent opposition in the world and in our hearts being triumphed over by Advent grace and mercy and power. This is our freedom and this is our joy. Father, thank you for the gift of our Savior. Thank you for the remarkable circumstances of his birth, the mystery of the incarnation. The razor's edge circumstances surrounding his 
His coming into the world, the, the tragic and scary stuff we read about in Matthew chapter 2, and yet the triumph of your sovereign purpose is the triumph of your beautiful grace, the triumph of your designs in our world. Father gives us courage and hope, confidence to cry out to you, to call out to you, to do Advent triumph over our opposition even this morning in our own lives, in our own hearts. Whatever it is that is a sticking point, whatever it is that is a, something we're hanging on to, something we're holding on to, something we're grasping, that little sphere of sovereignty we want to keep protected for ourselves. We all have them. Father, grace us with the ability to turn that over to you as well, I pray. And do that loosening up work we pray in our hearts and lives by drawing us to the table this morning. Feast spiritually on what you've done for us through Jesus, our Savior. To strengthen and nourish us. Subdue our wills ultimately. Because we know that in your compulsion, there is liberation for us. And so I ask for you to liberate us this morning increasingly through the power of the gospel, the power of the shed blood of Jesus. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.